Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Southern Africa and 7230 kilohertz on the 49-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabi Soluhuku and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN appeal for urgent funding for relief operations in Sudan and South Sudan. South Africa and Rwanda to- told direct to hold direct talks to resolve diplomatic row and Kenyan women want justice over post-election sexual violence. In economics, South African platinum sector strike threatens to reverse Amplat stocks gains and in sports news, Nigeria's Super Eagles coach lays down the rules for players. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The search for debris from the missing Malaysian airliner has resumed in the southern Indian Ocean. Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak this week confirmed that Malaysia Airlines flight MH370, which vanished while flying to Beijing from Kuala Lumpur, had crashed in the southern Indian Ocean. While numerous floating objects have been seen by satellite images and spotted planes in the search zone, none has been positively identified as coming from the missing The United States has said it was sending an undersea Navy drone to Australia in addition to a high-tech black box detector to help in the search. South African President Jacob Zuma has announced an extension of operations in the DRC and Sudan. The deployment of peacekeepers in eastern, in eastern DRC has been extended by another year. In addition, Zuma has approved the continued deployment of 850 military personnel in Sudan's Darfur region. South Africa's 220 naval troops will also remain in the Indian Ocean for another year. Zuma says the deployment of naval troops has helped curb piracy of Mozambique and Tanzania. Piracy is still a problem, much as it has gone down as a result of the presence of these forces. I think if you removed these forces, you would actually be saying it should come up again. I think the reason why we have extended the stay is because at the moment it is a remedy to the problem. And until we are certain that we have eradicated piracy, then we can say there is no point to put the security forces there. For now, the need still remains. 
South Africa's cash-strapped armed forces are in a critical state of decline that will take at least a decade to fix, according to a military strategy review neglect of defense capability could impact everything from border security to trade and constrain peacekeeping missions. South Africa currently has troops in the DRC and Sudan, and its ships support anti-piracy efforts off Mozambique. The 2014 South African Defense Review says such deployments are under threat. The report cites lack of proper ammunition, aging military transport planes, such as trucks. The report says lack of funding is preventing modernization of the 97,000 strong armed forces. The United States is increasing humanitarian aid to South Sudan to $411 million. The aid will be channeled through United Nations agencies and non-governmental organizations. About 250,000 people have fled to neighboring countries like Uganda, Ethiopia, Kenya and Sudan, and more than 700,000 have been displaced internally by the fighting, according to U.S. and U.N. estimates. The warring parties resumed a second round of talks yesterday in Addis Ababa in a bid to revive a ceasefire signed on the 23rd of January. And finally, 59 people have died following an outbreak of the Ebola virus in the West African country of Guinea. The World Health Organization, WHO, says the deaths were reported in forested areas near the border with Sierra Leone and Liberia. WHO has sent a team to the affected areas to find out how the virus is being transmitted and to stop the outbreak. Meanwhile, the European Union has deployed a mobile laboratory to carry out on-site tests. Additional suspected cases are being tested in Liberia. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South African President Jacob Zuma and his Rwandan counterpart Paul Kagame have agreed to hold direct talks to discuss the ongoing diplomatic spat between the two countries. Diplomatic relations between the two countries are at an all-time low following back-to-back expulsion of diplomats by both sides. The simmering tensions have raised concern within the region and became part of the discussions at the Great Lakes Region Security Summit, which took place in the Angolan capital, Luanda, yesterday. Presidential correspondent Tepo Ikaneng is in Luanda and compiled this report. President Jacob Zuma and his Rwandan counterpart Paul Kagame shook hands during their first face-to-face meeting since the diplomatic fallout. The Great Lakes Region Security Summit presented both leaders with an opportunity to inform regional leaders on what led to the tit-for-tat expulsion of senior diplomats. Pretoria expelled four Rwandese diplomats and a Burundian envoy after accusing them of orchestrating assassination attacks against exiled Rwandan dissidents on South African soil. Kigali responded by kicking out six South African diplomats, accusing Pretoria of harboring its enemies, accused of carrying out terrorist attacks in the East African state. In an exclusive interview with the SABC, President Zuma says they've agreed to hold direct talks with Paul Kagame to resolve the diplomatic row. We, we also 
agreed that we need to meet so that we can share some detailed information and deal with the issues. Bear in mind that some of the issues are still under investigation, but we did say there is that problem that has arisen because of the Rwandese that are in South Africa. Rwanda believes they are undertaking certain activities, and of course we as on the other side of South Africa has an international obligation that if people come to us for refugee status, we've got to give them. And of course, there was a very firm agreement that the two countries should meet and, and discuss the matter, and, and that has been accepted. The security summit also focused on the future of the Hutu-dominated FDLR rebel forces operating in the eastern DRC. The FDLR has announced that it's ready to lay down arms, but it's not clear if they will be allowed to return back to their homeland, Rwanda. The FDLR have been a source of a fierce diplomatic tension between the DRC and neighboring Rwanda. The rebel movement that opposed Rwandan's government fled into the eastern DRC after the 1994 genocide. President Zuma has expressed optimism that the DRC-Rwanda relations can be mended. I think the work that uh, President Kabila is doing satisfied everybody else, including, uh, I think, uh, Kagame that there is progress that is being made to still need to do more. And I think that is, in a sense, a process that will lead into strengthening of relations once those matters are resolved. Now that they are not yet completely resolved, we still have something like 1,000-plus <clears throat> negative forces that Kabila is dealing with. Uh, you would therefore expect that the chance at the moment is given to what is that we do on the ground to ensure that we resolve that issue once and for all. Angolan Foreign Affairs Minister Georges Chikoti has emphasized the need to restore peace and stability in the Great Lakes region. We want to achieve peace wherever there is conflict. So we want peace in the RC, we want peace in the Central African Republic. We want, after peace, we want to build on cooperation for development. If there is peace, we can cooperate for development. This is one of the richest regions of the continent. And if we can do cooperation. We will build our economies, we will bring prosperity to our peoples, and I think uh, that's what our people expect from the leadership of, of this region. Meanwhile, South Africa has extended the deployment of soldiers in the eastern DRC by another year. The 1,351 soldiers are part of the United Nations Intervention Brigade, helping to reach the area of rebels. Tsepo Ikaning in Luanda, Angola. Some of the UN's most senior humanitarian officials have expressed deep concern at the growing crisis in both Sudan's Darfur region and the new internal conflict devastating South Sudan and its people. In Sudan, some 6.1 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance, driven largely by increased needs in the Darfur region, where 200,000 people have been displaced by renewed fighting this year alone. In South Sudan, the situation is no better with 5 million people in need after a brutal conflict that has been described as a travesty. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The Darfur region has been a conflict zone for more than a decade and despite numerous efforts at peace, the situation has been long deteriorating. There is a rapid deterioration in the humanitarian situation. John Ging is Operations Director in the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. We, in our visit, we met people who, who have been in these camps for over 10 years and now they're being joined by huge numbers 
uh, of newly, newly displaced. So it's a situation that is going in the wrong direction. It's a situation that requires, uh, first and foremost, uh, an end to violence and an end to the conflict. Um, and it's a situation that requires a much bigger um, and, um, and uh, more generous response from uh, the international community. A 2014 appeal of $995 million for Sudan, which includes Darfur, is only 3% funded, lending credence to the view that this is fast becoming the forgotten conflict after drawing in the world's attention for so many years. In South Sudan, an appeal of $1.3 billion for this year is only 24% funded, leaving a desperate situation that sees humanitarian officials appealing on behalf of the victims they meet with calls for the conclusion to a peace process that continues to be delayed. This is where the future of, uh, of South Sudan lies at the moment in terms of uh, the outcome uh, of, this, uh, of this process. And we were implored by everybody that we met to use any influence that we have to raise the, the urgency uh, of uh, success to bring about um, an end to this, uh, to this conflict. We're not involved as humanitarians in the, in the peace process. Um, but I do think that we do have an obligation to give voice to, to, to the messages that are communicated to us. With the rainy season upon them, access becomes a huge concern in a country where three-fourths remains inaccessible due to poor road infrastructure, in what officials are calling a race against time. It's tragic to see what has happened. Yasmin Huck is with the UN Children's Fund as a deputy director in the Office of Emergency Programs. It's tragic to see what has happened. When we started at Independence in 2011, we asked children what is it that they saw, what, the, what is it that they wanted from their new nation. And they said three things. They wanted peace, security and education. And sadly for many, many children in South Sudan, nearly most children in South Sudan, that is not a reality and it's very difficult to see when that reality is going to become a, a more hopeful one. While levels of distrust between fighting forces and at times suspicion of the UN has placed humanitarian workers in the middle, John Ging explains. The lack of respect um, all too often for humanitarian staff, for humanitarian convoys, for humanitarian facilities and supplies. And our message to uh, the people of South Sudan is that they have to stand up for humanitarian action. Our message to the leadership in South Sudan is they've got to respect uh, humanitarian uh, action. Uh, too many delays uh, with, with convoys uh, through checkpoints and so forth. With the situation in Darfur said to be deteriorating rapidly and the people of South Sudan beset by yet another war, the light at the end of the tunnel appears to have faded, at least for those living the reality of war its brutality, and often its lack of consequences. I'm Shervin Bricebees in New York. The African Union is demanding that the United Nations deliver 12 helicopters that it approved to be used in Somalia by its mission in Somalia, Amisom. This force has been in Somalia since 2007 to help stabilize the security situation in that country. Koleta Wanjohi reports. As Somalia recovers from its over 20 years of insecurity and underdevelopment caused by internal fighting, security in the country continues to be greatly supported by an African-led mission called AMISOM. This mission was deployed to Somalia in 2007 and it is supported by the United Nations. 
However, the operation of AMISOM is being hindered by what the mission calls slow administration process, especially on the side of the United Nations. The United Nations approved that the peace enforcers be equipped with helicopters, but they have never been delivered. The African Union head of AMISOM mission in Somalia, Mohamed Saleh Anadif, explains that the troops need the helicopters as soon as possible. The United Nations have adopted a resolution, Resolution 2124, which authorizes the deployment of 12 helicopters, six combat helicopters and six transport helicopters. But so far we have not been able to secure to obtain these helicopters. So the Peace and Security Council has made an appeal so that all the countries uh, can make necessary contributions. Until January 2014, the AMISOM forces had over 17,000 soldiers in Somalia. These were contributed by Kenya, Uganda, Sierra Leone, Djibouti. And this number now stands at over 21,000 after Ethiopia incorporated its independent force in Somalia into AMISOM. Amisom reports that when the Al-Shabaab militants learned that the force had been boosted by more soldiers, they moved in to hide in towns and the capital city, Mogadishu. As such, there has been more coordinated joint security patrols being done by both the peace enforcers and the Somalia armed forces. But the focus now is to aid Somalia to hold its general elections in the year 2016. The United Nations Special Representative to Somalia, Nicholas Kay, explains. The government is finalizing now its own timetable for forming federal states, reviewing the constitution and holding elections by 2016. And it's important that we now support that uh, program of action and that the timetable is kept to. As of now, the African Union says that there is no need for more peace enforcers to be sent to Somalia. The troops that are there are enough. Kuletuanjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Today, in 1993, UN Security Council votes to set up the largest and most expensive peacekeeping operation so far. 30,000 troops and civilians are to go to Somalia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The African Union Commission Chairperson Gosazana Lamini Zuma has urged Germany as a key member of the European Union to support Africa's integration agenda and contribute to silencing the guns by 2020 as well as providing skills to the continent's youth. This ahead of the Africa-European Union Summit scheduled for April in Brussels in, Germ- in Belgium. The summit will see leaders of both continents agreeing on a way forward on its 50-year-old relationship. Jane Matebula reports. 
Members of the African Union AU Commission call for more mutually beneficial partnerships that would see more African youths and women trained, grow massive industries that would create employment for millions of African youths and preventing them from being lured to using dangerous means to seek better opportunities. Appreciating Germany's support towards the continent's efforts to maintain peace and security, the AU Commission Chairperson Dr. Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma says Germany could help skill the African youth. It's going to be assisting us in educating, skilling our young people because we think the investment in our young people is the most important thing that we need to do, even as a way of preventing war, conflict, as a way of modernizing Africa because the young people skilled science and technology, innovation, research will have to be the ones that modernize the continent. They are the ones who have to build and create wealth on our continent. So if there is just one thing, it would be assisting us to skill our young people. Lamine Zuma says Africa itself has a lot to offer to Germany in return. If you look at our continent, one of our biggest assets, as I say, is the people. We have agricultural land. This year is our year of agriculture. And we have 60% of Arab land still available in the world is on the continent. We have almost a third of all the minerals that the world needs. We have 20% of the flora of the world is in this continent. 25% of animal species of the world are in this continent. 17% of the forests of the world are in this continent. So it means that this continent, first with its people, secondly, as we integrate and have a continental free trade, for instance, that's a huge market for Germany, isn't it? More than a billion people and one free trade area. That's a huge. Secondly, we also have young people. I know Germany maybe is busy looking at creating robots to cater for the aging population in the years to come. You don't need to do that. You need to work with us. And we can have young people working in Germany. The German Federal Foreign Affairs Minister, Frank Walter Steinmeier, explains the relationship between the two continents. I think what we experienced during the last 10 years, that uh, we are affected by the crises on both continents, vice versa. You were affected in Africa by the European crisis during the last three, four years, and we are affected by the regional crisis here in Africa concerning, for instance, uh, the number of refugees. So there is uh, not only reason for being interested what happens in the neighbor continent, there is some more reason for closer cooperation. That is what we are trying now. Now in front of the next EU-African Union meeting in a few weeks. Minister Stein Mayer praises the AU for taking more responsibilities, particularly in forging with the resolution of regional conflicts. What has changed during the last eight years? I think the change in Africa is much more rapid than the change in the perception in the European public. And uh, this is one of the first reasons why I'm traveling to Africa and why I'm here in Ethiopia, to give a signal that um, the African Union has developed in a 
quite fruitful manner, meaning that the African Union is not only taking responsibility, but has more and more acceptance in whole Africa and is capable and able to calm or to solve regional conflicts, and that is what is needed. The Africa-EU dialogue, which initiated in April 2000, matured into a partnership with the adoption of the Joint Africa-EU strategy at the December 2007 summit in Lisbon, Portugal. The joint strategy is the global framework for relations between the two continents. The upcoming fourth Africa-EU summit gives an opportunity for Africa and the European Union to reflect thoroughly together on where the partnership stands today, its content and value added. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. Today, in 1998, U.S. President Bill Clinton becomes the first American head of state to visit South Africa. I am deeply honored to be the first American president ever to visit South Africa, and even more honored to stand before this parliament to address a South Africa truly free and democratic at last. Joining my wife and me on this tour of Africa, and especially here, are many members of our Congress and distinguished members of my cabinet and administration, men and women who supported the struggle for a free South Africa, leaders of the American business community now awakening to the promise and potential of South Africa. People of all different backgrounds and beliefs. Among them, however, are members of the Congressional Black Caucus and African-American members of my government. It is especially important for them to be here because it was not so long ago in the long span of human history that their ancestors were uprooted from this continent and sold into slavery in the United States, but now they return to Africa as leaders of the United States. Today they sit alongside the leaders of the new South Africa, united in the powerful poetry of justice. That was former U.S. President Bill Clinton addressing the South African Parliament in 1998. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Nairobi High Court is hearing a case in which four civil rights lobby groups are suing the Kenyan government seeking compensation for more than 5,000 women and girls who were raped during post-election violence seven years ago. The two groups claim that... The groups claim that the government failed to train and prepare police to protect civilians from sexual violence. James Shimanyula was in court and sent us this report. The first witness to testify was Kenya National Commission on Human Rights Chief Executive Officer Patricia Nyawundi. She told the presiding judge Isaac Lenaola that the government had discriminated against victims of sexual violence despite evidence that they were abused by security officers. Those who perpetrated sexual and gender-based violence on vulnerable women, Nyawundi said, 
are walking free and yet the government has done nothing to help their stigma. Shortly after the court session, I caught up with Muthoni Njuguna, the communications officer of one of the lobby groups, Coalition on Violence Against Women, COVO. She decried the government's reluctance to prosecute perpetrators of sexual violence during the 2007 ethnic clashes that resulted in sexual violence committed against more than 5,000 women. There are two suspects at the ICC level, but on the ground there are people who actually did suffer, and the government has not yet acknowledged or come to the fore and actually acknowledge that these atrocities did happen. People were raped, people were mutilated, people underwent a lot of torture. Explaining why it has taken long for the civil rights lobby groups to file the case against the government, Njuguna said. We were waiting for, first of all, the government to actually just do something about the cases that had been forwarded to them. Seven years later, they dropped over 5,000 cases. So we decided that we needed to take time to have something concrete to bring to the court. Coalition on Violence Against Women Executive Director Joan Nyanyuki, a medical doctor, told Channel Africa the impact of sexual violence on the victim. What happens to a sexual violence victim is first the physical trauma. But while that may heal, the psychological impact is long-lasting. The trauma of having been sexually violated, especially during conflict and violence, actually affects women and girls, even men, for life. So you find that when the physical signs may go away, the scars might go away, the impact in terms of their mental processing functions, their emotions, their judgment, even their outlook towards life and society changes completely. Dr. Nyanyuki also expressed her discontent over government's failure to investigate and bring to book those suspected to have carried out acts of sexual violence. The continued silence of the government on cases of sexual violence actually sends to the world the message that Kenya does not take seriously the criminalization of sexual violence acts. And further to this is the fact that we know sexual violence has been used as a weapon of war. We are calling the court to even acknowledge that the sexual violence that occurred in 2007 amounts to a crime against humanity. One of the victims of sexual violence, Wambui, not her real name, and 30 years old, spoke of her ordeal during the post-election violence. It was 30th December 2007. I was going to buy supper when I met three men. They asked me where I'm going. They knocked me down. They raped me. Another 55-year-old woman in Yambura, also not her name, relieved her rape ordeal. They started beating me. From there, I didn't know what they, they finished raping me. It was very pain. Those people were young. My mind was so bad. I was shaking. But now I'm okay because I went through the counselors. They counseled me and I was crying all the time. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. And Musa's up next with the headlines. Good morning. South Africa and Rwanda to hold direct talks to discuss the ongoing diplomatic spat between the two countries. 
UN Human Rights Office says the death sentences given to 528 people in Egypt is not only unprecedented in recent history, but also irregular and in breach of international human rights law. And the search for debris from the missing Malaysian airliner resumes in the southern Indian Ocean. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Oscar Pistorius' defense team has two days to consult with state witnesses the state did not call before they start presenting their case to the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria on Friday. State Prosecutor Gerry Nell closed the state's case yesterday. Pistorius is accused of killing his girlfriend Riva Steenkamp in the early hours of Valentine's Day last year. He shot four shots through a toilet door thinking there was an intruder behind the door. He pleaded not guilty to a charge of premeditated murder as well as three gun and ammunition related charges. Lila Machnas reports. State Prosecutor Gary Nell closed the state's case after calling 21 of the 107 witnesses on the charge sheet. The case was postponed until Friday to give Oscar Pistorius's defense team the opportunity to consult with the remaining state witnesses to determine if they want to call some of them to testify for Pistorius. Pistorius indicated in his plea explanation that he will testify for himself. Yesterday, however, his defense team said they still needed to decide. The state closed its case on the 15th day of the trial. State Prosecutor Gary Nell finished his questioning of the police's forensic cell phone expert, Francois Moller. Moller testified about Pistorius' cell phone activity right after the shooting. The first voice communication on the 14th of February at 03.19 and 03.00, seconds, the accused made a phone call to the number ending 2251. That number was saved on the accused handset as Johan Silverwoods. My lady, and that outgoing call lasted for 24 seconds. Let me get a uh, further phone call. That's correct. My lady, at, on the th- 14th of February at 03.20 and 05 seconds, the accused made a phone call to the 082911 number, which is an ambulance service. And that call lasted for 66 seconds. Then we have another phone call. The next phone call, my lady, was on the 14th at 03.21 and 33 seconds. Uh, It was an outgoing voice call that the accused made to a number that's ending 6797. And that number was identified, my lady, as the security um, of the state. And then there's an incoming call. That's correct, my lady, at 03.22 and 05 seconds. And that was when the 6797 security number phoned the the accused. There was another call. Call was made on the 14th at 03.55 and 02 seconds. It was an outgoing call to a number. That number was saved on the accused handset as Justin Davares. And that call lasted for 123 seconds. And a further phone call. That's correct, my lady. At 0401 and 38 seconds, there was an outgoing call to the 7775 number from the accused, and it lasted for 34 seconds. 
And that was saved as? That was saved as Deco, and the number was identified as belonging to Heinrich Pistorius. During cross-examination, Moller conceded that he looked for messages between Pistorius and his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, that were different and that indicated that they were fighting. This after he read messages aloud in court earlier this week, where Steenkamp said she was afraid of Pistorius. Roommate Moller read several messages between Pistorius and Steenkamp, where they are loving towards each other. If you page through this, I'm not going to read it in, you will see many crosses and loving messages in the pages following. That's you confirm that? That's correct, my lady. If you can just read the first four emails, I will tell you why I want you to read it. Outgoing, are you up and going, boo? Then again, that out- is B-O-O. That's correct, B-O-O. Um, again, outgoing, good luck with ev- everything today, rock star. Meaning outgoing is from Riva to the uh, Riva to, to the accused, that's correct. Incoming, uh, the deceased received one, um, my angel and a kiss, and then again an outgoing message from the deceased, um, boo and a kiss. There will be a number of WhatsApp messages where they use this name, boo, and baby and baba, That's with correct. kisses. That's correct, my lady. During his cross-examination, Ruth showed a closed-circuit video from a shop at a filling station of Pistorius and Steenkamp, where they steal a quick kiss before continuing their shopping. Steenkamp's mother, June, was visibly upset by seeing her daughter in the video. After Moller testified, Nell called warrant officer Adrian Maritz to testify. He is a crime information officer at the Boschkop police station. The Silverwoods estate falls in that police station's precinct. Maritz testified that in the three years before April 2013, there were only eight criminal cases reported in the Silverwoods estate, that is, including the cases relating to Pistorius. Pistorius said in his bail application affidavit that he was a victim of crime in the past and is very aware of the crime situation in the country. Maritz, however, testified that he couldn't find that Pistorius was ever a victim of crime or reported a crime on the police's national system. He conceded under cross-examination that the security estate and guards are no guarantee that a person will not be attacked. The state's last witness was forensic analyst Colonel Gerard Vermeulen, who was recalled on the request of the defense. Rue questioned Vermeulen about another mark Pistorius's forensic expert found on the toilet door that could be matched to the cricket bat. There was no reason for me to deny that uh, uh, the mark was not caused by the, or was caused by the bat. There was no, no way for me to, to deny that. If, if it was so, then I would have, I would have um, uh, reported it. There, there is a reason, Colonel. And the reason is when you stand on the stumps on that height, that you would not be able to, to imitate that mark. Vermeulen earlier testified his investigation indicated Pistorius was on his stumps when he broke down the door and not on his prosthesis, as he claims. The trial will resume on Friday when defence advocate Barry Roo will call his first witness and state prosecutor Gary Nell will be given the opportunity to cross-examine. Lila Magnus, Pretoria. 
A ministerial meeting in South Africa's Johannesburg city has heard how Africa is one of the continents unlikely to achieve the Millennium Development Goal target of halving TB-related mortality by the end of 2015. The event, which ended yesterday, gathered representatives from Lesotho, Mozambique, South Africa and Swaziland with the aim of discussing a standardized approach to managing TB in the mining industry across all four countries. Elizabeth Mapari attended the event and filed this report. A meeting that has been described as an important step in the development of a truly regional approach that will help end the century-old scourge. Tuberculosis affects cross-border migrant workers disproportionately and experts say it cannot be tackled by any country alone. What's worse, about half a million mine workers in South Africa and about two million ex-mine workers spread across Lesotho, Mozambique, South Africa and Swaziland are at high risk of the lung infection. According to South Africa's Deputy President Halima Mutlanti, TB is not just a health matter in the Sadiq region. There is a clear recognition of the fact that this is not just a health matter, but it is also an economic, social and development issue, especially for Southern Africa. This disease, which is the leading cause of death in our country, has a huge impact on workforce productivity and operational costs in an industry that contributes about 20% to South Africa's GDP. The reason mine workers in Southern Africa are particularly vulnerable to TB is their exposure to multiple risk factors as a result of their jobs, their living conditions and their migrant lifestyles. Also, prolonged exposure to silica dust in often poorly ventilated deep mine shafts can cause silicosis, which increases the risk of pulmonary tuberculosis. One of the keynote speakers at the meeting, Dr. Lucica Ditu, Executive Secretary of the Stop TB Partnership, says this is one of the many reasons why African governments must do more to protect miners from TB. I think much more should be done, much more also because I think TB is not really understood even beyond the mining sector. It's much more easiness in addressing other health issues. When it comes about TB, you realize that ministers are a bit not equipped to make a very strong business case about that. So I think it will need a lot of efforts. Nestled in the eastern part of Africa is Tanzania, which had some positive stories to share at the meeting. The country has exceeded the World Health Organization target of treating 85% of new TB cases annually, reaching 88% coverage nationwide. However, Tanzania's Minister of Energy and Minerals, Professor Sos Peter Mhongo, says there's still room for improvement. He has a few lessons he drew from his counterparts. The lesson here is that, first of all, we have to remain focused and continue fighting TB from the mines, that is one. Secondly, we have to work across the border because, uh, you know, diseases do not uh, obey political borders. So we have to work together. And thirdly, this is how we are going to develop some methodologies that are common and similar. And also that we should, as a sub-region of Africa, sit together and raise funds that may be used to eradicate TB from our minds. While the meeting has presented hopes to tackle the many barriers that prevent mine workers from accessing the much-needed health services, it remains to be seen whether this move by ministers in Southern Africa will indeed help tighten up mine health and safety regulation in the region. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Mapari in Johannesburg. 
Indian police have arrested the head of militant group, the Indian Mujahideen, blamed for a series of bombings that killed hundreds in recent years. Detectives say the outfit, which once planned a nuclear strike on a city, was also plotting attacks to derail Indian elections set to begin on April the 7th. Ramasen has more. Tehsi Natter, the 23-year-old head of Indian Mujahideen, was India's most wanted man. He was detained days after the outlawed group's Pakistani bomb maker was arrested along with three other Indian Mujahideen operatives. Police said the arrests were one of India's most successful anti-terrorism operations against the homegrown group. The outfit, branded a foreign terrorist organization by the United States in 2011, first came into the limelight in 2007 with serial blasts in the state of Uttar Pradesh. It is also accused of a number of attacks since including the cities such as Jaipur, Mumbai, Bangalore, Delhi and Pune killing hundreds. India believes the group is linked to Pakistan based Lashkar-e-Taiba and Jaish-e-Mohammed militant organizations. Junior Home Minister RPN Singh called Akhtar's arrest a prize catch. Huge achievement I would say as far as our fight against terrorism goes. Our fight against terror is showing positive results. We have been relentless in pursuit of all these terrorists who have attacked the very idea of India and I think intelligence agencies have shown some remarkable progress. The group's co-founder Yasin Batkal stunned security agencies when after his arrest this year told police he had planned to explode a nuclear device in Surat city to warm up to the al-Qaeda and Taliban in Afghanistan and intensify jihad against India. Counter-terrorism expert Vyan Tyagi said the boast needs to be taken most seriously. It needs to be investigated very thoroughly because nowhere in the world so far a dirty bomb has been used. If he is making such a revelation or a claim, then you know it, it, it's a very, very serious matter. And what India, the whole world should then investigate. The group which is said to have simply Sympathizers also in Nepal and Bangladesh and in the West is also blamed for a string of blasts last October that killed six people at a rally by Narendra Modi, the main opposition's prime ministerial candidate. Militants hold the Hindu nationalist leader responsible for the carnage of Muslims in 2002 riots in Gujarat when he was chief minister of the state. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tabi Sondohoko up next with our economics update. South Africa's major platinum producers, led by the world's largest miner of the metal, Amplus, say they are running low on stockpiles. Tandega Kobole reports. When the strike started in January, reserves were estimated to last for eight weeks. As the strike continues with no end in sight, platinum stockpiles are down to a perilous state. The car manufacturers will be hardest hit, as some parts are made from platinum, such as catalytic converters. The effects of the strike will be felt in the jewelry and fuel cell industries. South Africa contributes close to 75% of the world's platinum production. Losses to production are estimated at over 9 billion rand, and hunger and starvation have set in on the platinum belt. 
The High Court in Johannesburg will today hear argument from the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, ICASA, in the case brought against it by the country's major mobile operators, Vodacom and MTN. Morafet Tabana reports. The two mobile giants argued that they will make significant revenue losses if the new proposed termination rates are to be implemented on the 1st of April. The new termination rates will see MTN and Vodacom pay 44 cents per minute to connect to CELC and Telcom Mobile. The court will hear from ICASA today. It is expected that CELC and Telcom Mobile will argue against the suspension of rates. Judge Mayette is likely to reveal her findings on Friday. The South African Reserve Bank is expected to keep interest rates um, steady at tomorrow's policy meeting. Economists polled by Reuters say increases could be on the cards later this year as inflation pressures remain a concern. They say a rate hike now will alienate the powerful labor union as well as their allies um, of the ruling ANC party as well as the May 7th election draws closer. Earlier this month, the South African Reserve Bank moved to manage market expectations of steep rate hikes this year after an increase in January. Standard Chartered Bank of Kenya expects East Africa's middle class to drive growth this year after it recorded a 16% rise in last year's pre-tax profit. The leader, which is controlled by Standard Chartered, says its net interest income jumped by 18%. Lamin Manjang, who took over the leadership of the bank this year after running its business in Omen, attributes the positive outlook to a range of opportunities across personal, corporate and project financing. He says the bank would also benefit from a range of planned infrastructure and energy investment projects by the governments, as well as the country's nascent oil and gas sector that would bring it new business. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.79 South African rands at 8.74 Botswana Bulas and 5.93 Zambian Kwachas. It's also trading at 0. what? 6.0 to the British pound and 0.72 to the euro. Gold trades at $1,312, platinum $1,417 an ounce, brand crude $106.65 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabiso. Now, Tami Kuza Mbalula has um, again uh, basically Look, said the, he's the question dealing with of federations. transformation. Mm. It has been there for a long time. Mm. Um, remember, there were quotas that were introduced in rugby, mm, yes. but they were met with uh, resistance. Mm-hmm. And then now it transfer. It, it it went down to soccer. It was fine and uh, cricket. Little bit of resistance. So. The question is back again, with mm-hmm. EPGs now being appointed so as to oversee what is happening. But the one that I like is about Stephen Cash. That one oh, takes yes. the cake. Oh, yes. Mm. Mm. He lays down the law. Yeah. Okay, give us an update. Cool. In your sports update, let's start with soccer, where Super Eagles head coach Stephen Keshi gave the green light yesterday that married players could go to the World Cup with their wives 
but ruled out single players going out with their girlfriends. Speaking at the TomTom Roundtable yesterday, Kesha said that wives and girlfriends are good for players, but would not tolerate girlfriends in Brazil. Kesha said in 1994, Westerford allowed them to go with their wives, but he can't allow to company players that the girlfriends must accompany players. So married men in the Eagles can go with their wives, but there will be no room for girlfriends. And back home, South African Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, Figile Mbalula, has endorsed Dr. Vili Basson's pilot project of the Sports Transformation and Development Charter that will foresee changes in five sporting codes, that is rugby, cricket, soccer, netball and athletics, with the help of the Eminent Persons Group, the EPG. The charter includes guidelines for the South African sports sector, including national and provincial federations, clubs, schools, tertiary institutions, as well as their substructures. Here is Dr. Willy Basson. The pilot was a culmination of a process that involved the transformation charter, which based on certain principles. So the pilot was intended to test those principles and then to make measurements in terms of the component parts of the charter. The minister has also highlighted the shortage of facilities and he reckons it could detour transformation. The big question is where to South Africa from here. The constraints placed by the lack of facilities in our communities pose a real threat and is inhibiting our dream of universal access to sports facilities. And now in rugby, the process to select the under-20 squad to represent South Africa at the RIB Junior World Championship will begin on Sunday. This will be when the expanded training group gathers in Stellenbosch and the country's Western Cape province for an intensive two-month training camp. The group, consisting of almost 70 of the country's most promising under-20 players, will play trial matches starting on Monday in Stellenbosch. After the trials, the squad will be reduced to about 40 players. The Junior World Championships will be held in Auckland from June the 2nd until the 20th. South African under-20 coach Davi Theron, as well as members of the South African Rugby Union Moby Unit, will guide the players through a series of planning, field and conditioning sessions before a short break before the Easter holidays. Saro will then announce the South African under-20 squad of 28 players on April the 22nd. Finally in tennis, world number one, Rafael Nadal brushed to pass Italy's Fabio Fognini 6-2-6-2 to join Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer and Andy Murray in the last eight of the Sony Miami Open. Nadal says he is ready to play Milos Raonic next. Huge, one of the best without any doubt and he's able to play very aggressive on, on the return because he, he doesn't feel a lot of pressure when on his return because he knows that uh, he's very safe with himself. No? So. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shan at the Sawa, UN appeal for urgent funding for relief operations in Sudan and South Sudan, South Africa 
and Rwanda to hold direct talks to resolve diplomatic row and Kenyan women want justice over post-election sexual violence. That wraps up Africa Rouse and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za, follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One, or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the... For the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa is Jonas Gwangwa with Murwa.